Help me, Heavenly Father, to be true to the text of Scripture, to apply the text of Scripture, and Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who alone can make teaching preaching, who alone can make this word, which is your inerrant and infallible word, become for us a living word that pierces our own hearts, that discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and lays us bare before you and ourselves. Would you grant that, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord Jesus purchased for us? For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is to ask this question. When is a star not a star? When is a star not a star? I was raised in South Carolina, and I had never been west of North and South Carolina, and I'd never been north of North Carolina except into Danville, Virginia, about 14 miles north, until 1959. And in 1959, my brother was at the U.S. Air Force Academy in its first year in the new facility near Colorado Springs, and they were not allowed to come home for Christmas. He'd had two years of college at the Citadel before that, but you have to all start over when you're at one of those academies. So Daddy said, we're going to go see Billy for Christmas. And he went and bought a new car, a station wagon. And we picked up a lady and her son who was able to help Daddy drive, and we drove all the way from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, to Colorado Springs for Christmas. While I was there in 1959 in December, they did a planetarium presentation on the star Bethlehem. I will never forget it. It was their brand new campus and their brand new planetarium, and they wanted to show us what the star Bethlehem was. I was open-mouthed because I didn't know anything like that existed in South Carolina. So I saw it, and they gave this theory and they gave that theory. Years passed, and I went off to college. And it turned out where I went, they had a planetarium. And in December of 1966, I took a course in astronomy that was largely taught in that planetarium. And the professor gave a presentation on the Star of Bethlehem. And then our paper, you always have to write a major paper for every college course, was on what we thought the Star of Bethlehem was. And I almost flunked because of what I'm about to tell you. The Star of Bethlehem was not a star. And I'm going to prove it to you. If we turn over to the next page, we see some interesting things. Starting at verse 9, Matthew 2.9, page 1498. After they heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now think about it for a moment. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Why? Because they had seen the star in the east. They were probably in Iran. And the Iranians were really big into that stuff, and so were the people in Iraq, Babylon, Persia. And they were probably 
from that neck of the woods, and they believed in astrology. Astrology is different from astronomy. Astronomy is the, is the scientific study of the heavens. But astronomy is trying to tell people's fortunes based on this or that thing. It's a kind of an occult thing. And uh, it's amazing when you're reading them, expecting an answer. You say, oh, that sounds just like me. I was born under Taurus the bull, and I've been shooting bull most of my life. Well, anyhow, so people in astronomy understand the motion of the stars, planets, the moon, the sun, and so on. But in astrology, they're trying to determine things. And so these were astrologers, and they believed in dreams, and they believed in signs in the heaven, and something caught their eye when they were over there in the, in the east, because both Iraq and Iran are east of Jerusalem. And it made them think of the Jewish people. We don't know what it was. But now, notice, they, it was enough to make them head out to present gifts to the new king of the Jews. The trouble was, in 40 B.C., the Roman Senate made Herod the Great the king of the Jews. They gave him that title, the king of the Jews. And so here these astrologers come to Jerusalem seeking to find this son of Herod. Of course, Herod had killed a few sons by this time of his own. And um, so here they are. Where is he was born king of the Jews? We've seen the star in the east. But look at what the reaction is. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The implication of the text, this is implicit, the other one is explicit. The implication of the text is they had not seen the star since setting out. And in the normal world of astronomy, if they had seen some astronomical phenomenon, that would have been enough to set them on their journey, but not necessarily to guide them on their journey. They saw the star in the east. And now the implication of the verse is they saw it again. The implication is they had not been seeing it. Now, I say that's implicit, but let's look at what's explicit in verse 9. And notice it says, after they left Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. That doesn't happen. This is not a natural phenomenon. And this is what my professor of astronomy almost flunked me for uh, asserting. Because by that time, I had been reading Greek for quite a while. I had had 10 hours of Greek and was in the middle of three more. And so I analyzed the Greek New Testament carefully. And that was my conclusion. These things don't happen in the natural world. What you've got here is that a heavenly light is guiding and stopping right over the house where Mary and the boy are. I rest my case. What's implicit in verse 10 is explicit in verse 9. This is not a natural phenomenon. They see it again, and it leads them step by step to where the child and his mother was were. Notice when they get there, we don't see Joseph. Why don't we see Joseph? 
Well, Joseph had to provide for his family. I don't think he had gone back to Nazareth, as I once thought. I think that he kind of hung around this part of the world because he had traveled there, because he had to be registered, because both he and Mary were descendants of David. Mary was also a descendant of Aaron. And I think that he just looked for work. He was a laboring man. He was a builder. Means he could do masonry. He could do bricks. He could do wood. He could do all these things. And being a good father and a good husband, because he was Jesus' legal father, he made sure his family was taken care of. He's not going to sit idly around. Herod did not have a program that if because there's this plague going on, we're going to provide for you. He knew, as Daddy told me, boy, there ain't no free lunches. And so Joseph is out using his skills to provide for Mary and for Jesus before the other children are born. Well, where is he? I don't know. Where is the Lord Jesus? I don't know. But we do see here that they arrive at the house and they see in verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bow down. They worship him. They give him these gifts. And I won't go into all these things in that uh, Christmas song that ends the Christmas season on Twelfth Night, which was last week. Uh, we Three Kings of Orient are. Uh, it gives a kind of a exposition of what each thing means, but not necessarily true to the text. But notice verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now we see something else in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And so again, notice if you read through the, the book of Matthew in the early chapters, first two chapters, there are a whole lot of dreams that are going on. Does God still use dreams today? Oh, yes. But remember one thing, there's only one rule of faith in life, only one yardstick by which to measure truth, and it's the Bible. But he uses dreams. He can apply what we've heard in a sermon. He can apply what we've seen in a movie. He can apply what we heard from a friend or an enemy. And we concoct it up in our brains by natural means, but the Holy Spirit can use it. So notice that, the, that Joseph is warned, because he's the head of the house, get up, take the child and his mother escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, we're going to consider Herod in a moment. Who is this man? His daddy was Antipater, and his daddy was a descendant of Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and the warnings that nothing that the descendants of Esau would build would last. Well, here is, here is the son of Antipater. Antipater was... I licked my finger to try to tell which way the wind's blowing. Antipater was a man who was super shrewd, and he was able to align himself with a very corrupt pervert uh, and traitor to his country by the name of Julius Caesar. And he aligned himself with Julius Caesar. 
And he was always after trying to make sure his two boys, Faisal and Herod, had a good position. But eventually Antipater and Faisal got killed. And so Herod inherits his father's ability. And I've got a little quote down there in the bulletin that I came across in a book I read years ago. And it's, uh, it's, it's this, politics is the art of appearing candid and completely open while concealing as much as possible. You think that describes politicians? I think that's Herod. Herod was able to ingratiate himself. And what was so amazing, after patriots assassinated Julius Caesar on March the 15th, the Ides of March, Eventually, civil war broke out between two of those who were avenging Caesar's death, Octavian and Mark Anthony. And so what do you think you do when you're Herod and you discover that you've got two people who are going to win? You bet on one. But you also are very careful. Herod supported Mark Anthony. The trouble is that at the back battle of Actium, Octavian won. So what did Herod do? He hightails it over there and he said, look, you know me. I'm a good politician. Good politicians squeeze the people to get that tax money and then they pass it on. And you ain't going to find anybody better than me. Herod is going to be the best client king you can possibly have. And you know what? They agreed with him. So Herod then is named king of the Jews, but he's very insecure. Wouldn't you be? And so he is a brutal man. And what he does is he sends his troops. When he realizes that the Magi did not return to him, what do we read here? And uh, verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. Now, he really hadn't been outwitted by the Magi. He'd been outwitted by the Lord. (laughs) But the Lord instructed the Magi what to do. God has a specific will for your life. Maybe you're in a fix. God will guide you what to do. He guided the Magi. And uh, so Herod realizes, those guys tricked me. They ain't coming back. And so uh, what does he do? He was furious. And as I look at that in Greek, I just see he, he was really enraged. So much so he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So we have to understand something. That great movie, The Nativity Story, and it's a really great movie, Uh, messes up the chronology here because it's not the night that Jesus is born when the shepherds come that they flee to Egypt. It's sometime after that and they're living in the vicinity of Bethlehem and uh, so they're warned and they go to Egypt because Herod was a megalomaniacal maniac who was obsessed with security. Now never forget this because this is a great truth. I want you to turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. And I want you to understand the nature of politicians. 
2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is very important in the Christmas story because Herod is the quintessential politician. He knows he owes his power to somebody above him. He knows what he has to do to keep that position. And he is obsessed even if he has to murder his own children, which he did, and murder his own wife, which he did. He's obsessed to keep on to power. Do you mean that political power is that much of a drug? Yes, it is. Political power is a terrible drug. And when the Bible speaks about mammon, it's referring both to civil, to silver and gold on the one hand and to what silver and gold buys, which is influence. And so I want you to look at something. And uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 486, I'm going to show you that what's in, what was in Herod the Great was also in King David, a man after God's own heart. Remember again what I said. Political power and influence is so addictive that if a person lets it go and allows himself to give free reign to that, he will become so obsessed with holding on to power, he will murder his own wife and sons, as Herod the Great did. Look at David here. You know the story. I don't need to go into detail about it. But you remember that David was being lazy in chapter 11. It was a time when the kings went forth to war. He decided to stay home. So I've done that too many times. It's kind of like somebody saying, well, I'm too old to teach Sunday school. I did that years ago. But anyhow, even though children need you, uh, that was an appeal I used to make on Wednesday nights at the church I served years ago. I'm too tired to go. I don't need to go out there and sleep on the ground. After I was at the National Jamboree in 1997, I decided I'm not sleeping on the ground again for after two weeks of it. So anyhow, I'm staying home. While he's staying home, it's hot. It's in the evening. He goes up on his roof because roofs were flat. They had little tents up there where you could get some shelter, get a breeze. And he happened to look over the wall. He looks over the wall. And then, you know how it goes. Man, I better check that out. That She shouldn't be doing that. I think I saw a naked woman. I better take a look to check out and make sure that's what I really saw. Surely I didn't really see it. My goodness. Oh, my. And it isn't long before he sends for Bathsheba, whose husband, Uriah the Hittite, was one of David's most trusted soldiers. And she comes over, and in an example of what's called sexual harassment, that's when the boss uses his influence to gain something that may not have happened otherwise. They sleep together. Well, it so happens that she got pregnant. Yes, you can get pregnant uh, with one thing like that. And so David's nervous now. Do you know what the penalty for adultery was in God's law? Death. Even for the king, even for the king. The king is not above the law, but the king is shrewd. So he sends a message for Joab to send Uriah back to him. And he said, well, Uriah, why are you here? You know, said, uh, why don't you go home and see your, your wife? No, sir, I, I can't go there because my brother's soldiers are in the field serving you. And I'm going to sleep right here at your doorstep, says David. 
And so what he does is, you know what Ogden Nash said, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. He got him all liquored up. And he figured, well, now that he's drunk, he'll do what his impulse is telling. But Uriah was a better man than King David. Then David's got a problem. So he sends word. And look at what he says there on page 486, verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. That's what David told told Joab, his commander-in-chief under him, to do. said, you put Uriah the Hittite in a place where he's going to get killed. And what happens? Verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab sends David a full account, verse 18, and we read on down. And, uh, and we told this, in, we're told this in David's response in verse 25, bottom of page 487. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Do you realize what you've just read? You've read what happens to a political leader when he's written one too many letters to a mother who's lost her son in battle. After a while, whether it's the Civil War or World War I or World War II, You become calloused. You become calloused. Do you become calloused to committing murder? Yes. When you are involved in taking human life indirectly by giving orders to others, after you've done it enough, your conscience becomes seared. It no longer shocks you. It just may haunt you in your dreams. I have a friend that I prayed with not so long ago. And he told me as he served in Korea, he's haunted by all of the Korean women and orphans who come to him in his dreams and ask him why he murdered them. Wow. But when you're in the regular world, not in dreamland, you you just sear your conscience. Searing your conscience is like searing meat. You sear it to hold the juices in. And searing your conscience makes you able to function and do your job. And that's what David is saying to his general. Don't let it upset you. The sword devours one uh, as well as another. It just so happens we arranged to make sure that this sword devoured Uriah the Hittite and not Joe Schmo. You see the callousness? Now I want you to look at one other passage of Scripture, and that is, go backwards to the left, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And what I want to see here is with you why powerful governments are dangerous. Why powerful governments are dangerous. We already see that even a king like King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who knew what it was to lift his hands in praise, a man who knew what it was to strum his harp and sing praises to the Lord, A man who was a true worshiper of the Lord, honest and godly, gets snared by one of the things that will take a preacher down faster than a taxi in New York City. A woman. Wow, that'll take a preacher out. It really will. And so here he is, David, is taken out by his adultery. 
And even David, because power is so addictive, even David is willing to commit murder and he assures his own conscience, hey, this isn't wrong. Now let's look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel, the name of his first, and you see on, go on. And it says in verse 3, But his sons did not walk in, the, in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. It sounds like modern America with campaign contributions, doesn't it? So we see in verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now look at verse 6. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Now look at what the Lord told Samuel, verse 7. The Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign, who will reign over them will do. Let me tell you that 1 Samuel chapter 8 is key to understanding Matthew 2. It's the key to understanding Matthew 2. Because what they wanted to do was to get away from a loose-knit tribal confederacy where God would raise up leaders for them to deliver them from foreign foes, and they wanted somebody to take care of them. Behind all tyrannical governments, is the desire for somebody to take care of you. I remember when Daddy died in 1987. No longer to have my Daddy. Later on, Mama died. You know, it's lonely sometimes to sit on your back porch in a rocking chair and to reflect, where's Daddy? Where's Mama? I'd like to ask Daddy's opinion on this. You know, deep down inside, I want somebody to be my Daddy. What does that mean? Take care of me. Don't worry about it, boy. I'm going to take care of you. And that's what we want. We want somebody to take care of us. God says, let me take care of you. But we want to have somebody take care of us. Somebody to pay our bills. Somebody to take care of our medical expenses. Somebody to help us out in our old age. Can't trust my kids. You know, those things, that thinking. And that's what people want. And so what do people do? In 1 Samuel 8, they are willing to give up power and money to a central authority to take care of them. And you know what? The end of the king of the Jews, the beginning of the king of the Jews, 1 Samuel 8, is King Saul. The end of the king of the Jews is the line of Herod. Wow. A conniving, megalomaniacal murderer who would do anything to keep power. And I look at the story of the murder of the innocent children around Bethlehem, two years old and under, and how God protected his own son from this. And it is an enormous lesson for you and me. The model for the Christian church is not somebody at the top. 
It's people elected by the people to be representatives or elders. That's the model for the government of the United States. Because the people who framed the Constitution understood the book. They didn't all believe the book, but they understood the book. And they understood total depravity. Meaning that not that people are as bad as they can possibly be, but there is no aspect of the human personality that has escaped the effect of sin. And that's why I'll kill you. And you'll kill me. If you become addicted to power, if you become addicted to what power brings, that sense of entitlement, that sense of I've got it now, you'll kill people. You don't you tell me you won't ever do it. I've seen enough. I've heard enough. I've heard the private confessions of so many people. I'll tell you, you will do it to save your own skin apart from the Holy Ghost. Because human beings crave security at their own hands. Wow. From King Saul to King Herod, a long line of murderers. Are we different? What can we do in 2022? It's a year of deception. Do politicians deceive? Sure. Herod was an outright liar and a murderer. Don't trust your government. Don't trust your government. If you couldn't trust King David, how can you possibly trust Joe Biden? Would King David do murder? He sure did. Would Joe Biden do murder? Yes. So would Donald Trump. You go on back, every president in my lifetime, going back to Harry Truman, as I used to play with my soldiers on the floor during the Korean conflict, they're all got blood on their hands. All of them. Would somebody arrange for somebody to be in Dealey Plaza to become president? I don't know. I can't judge the man's heart. I'll tell you this. To know history well is to know a sad and sorry saga of sin and depravity. What can help us, dear ones? Nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only king in history who's a good king. Really? Really? I thought... I thought Judah had a couple of good kings. The best king Judah ever had was King Josiah. But he wasn't able to remove the curse that God put on the country because of his grandfather, Manasseh. But even he ignored God's counsel and got himself killed by meddling in a foreign country he had no business with. So that's what we have. What we have in the story of the incarnation of Christ is a story of murder, deceit, genocide, people holding on to power. But think of the Lord Jesus with me, if you will. The Lord Jesus who was protected by His heavenly Father and who instructed His earthly Father, His legal Father, to take the boy to Egypt to protect him. What's the role model of Jesus? What does Jesus do? 
as a king. What did Jesus do? Jesus let go of power. He's the only politician in history who let go of power. Do you know the power that Jesus had was a power to serve? He who is greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. And he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, which is what politicians want. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow, a ransom for many. He yielded his rights. He yielded his prerogatives. He gave up the glories of heaven as the eternal son of the eternal God. He who had reigned on high with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. The king of angels comes to earth. And as a human being, he doesn't grab power. He lets go of it. Got you in my power now. He lets go of it. He makes himself of no account. He makes himself to be a servant. Were Jesus to come into Trinity Church today and discover the toilets overflowing, he would be the one to go to the bathroom and clean up that nasty mess. You believe that? I believe that. It's so amazing you study church history that those who claim to be the successors of Christ are the mirror opposite. Where is it with you and me? Will you yield your rights today? Will you surrender them? Will you come to Him and say, Lord, I give it all up. And I'll tell you, that's the secret of joy. But Jesus gave it all up so that you and I would be forgiven. And that's why on the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and He blessed it. Blessed are you, Lord God of the universe, who gives us bread, and broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And that's why, after they had supped, He took the cup and said, This cup is my blood of the new covenant. All of you drink it. Why did He do that? He did it the night before He was crucified because He wanted to leave you and me a visible word from God so that we would trust in Jesus and not ourselves. When you understand that the standards of God's law are summed up in one individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize you're no good and neither am I. You realize there's nothing you've got that can commend you to God except your relationship to Jesus. He died on the cross to save you from your sins. Let's pray. Lord, take these feeble words as we look at the star that was not a star, at Herod the so-called great, who was a megalomaniacal murderer, as we look at his actions to wipe out little boys to hold on to power, and we contrast that with your model of government in the Old Testament, and finally with the model of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that my king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that the Lord Jesus would do anything for me because he loves me and he gave himself for me. Would you grant as we take of this meal, Lord, to feel your embrace as we eat of the bread and to feel your assurance that everything we've ever done wrong has been washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. For Jesus' sake,